March comes in like a lion and out like a lamb. Is that right? Or does March come in like a lamb and out like a lion? Stop. Even before the music starts, let me take a moment and ask you one quick question. So May 7th and 8th in Las Vegas, Nip and Arnold and I are having a workshop on accident investigation and the new understanding of safety and reliability. And if you're interested in going, we'd love to have you. If you're not interested in going, well, of course, we don't want to have you because it would suck to have you in the classroom. But we need to see if some people are interested in having this before uh, we go to all the uh, amazing levels of difficulty to get this crap set up. So if you're interested in thinking about going to this, May it's a busy week because we're having a full hop workshop in Chattanooga on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And then Thursday, Friday is this meeting with Nippon because he's flying over from England and that's the time he's got to do this. So if you're interested in coming to this thing, we'd love to have you. But I need to kind of get a feel if there's an interest and if there's numbers. So I put a podcast out on this uh, earlier, like like last Wednesday or the Wednesday before this podcast came out. And I haven't heard much about it, which is okay. I mean, if, if you're not interested, that's not a problem at all. Um, just need to know. But if you are interested, I'd hate for you to miss this opportunity because it's a, it's a really good first day an accident investigation and, and new safety. And that's a pretty good discussion to have if you haven't had it already. And then the second day is a deep dive workshop, kind of a case study into the Costa Concordia, the, the cruise ship that rolled on its side. Um, and that's a really, really interesting day as well. It's two days in Vegas, Friday, or Thursday and Friday, the 7th and 8th of May, 2020. So if you're interested, ping us at um, uh, Todd Conklin at gmail.com or uh, any of the other places we talked about. We'd love to have you. It'd just be cool to have you. If not, that's cool too. But enough said. Let me start the podcast. Okay, go. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Pre-Accident Podcast. I'm Todd Conklin, the host of this podcast, of which there are now a hundred million safety podcasts, which I actually think is great. I'm so glad other people getting on this bandwagon. I don't know how you guys find time to listen to all this crap, but that is your deal. Not my deal. That's how it is. It is March 1st, unless you're listening to this at a different time. And then it was March 1st and you missed it, but it's fine. Cause it doesn't really matter. I wouldn't say the March thing is that timely. I mean, March is a weird month for us. Because if you live in the Intermountain West in North America, where, where I live, in Santa Fe, March is kind of a mean month. So our two snowiest months by a mile are March and April. And April shouldn't be snowy at all. That's just wrong. And March is mean because it makes you think summer's almost here. It kind of feels spring-like, but it's not spring. So it's, it's the craziest deal. It's like, um, how can I explain it? The days are really sunny and warm, but it's still cold and it'll snow like crazy, but the snow won't last long. So we'll get like a foot of snow and we will, I promise you we will, and it'll snow a foot and then like the next day it'll be gone. And that's just mean. I mean, that's just, that's teasy. 
So I think the phrase goes, March comes in like a lion and out like a lamb, which kind of makes sense, except we probably have to include April. So March and April come in like a lion and out like a lamb, because that's kind of how the weather works for us. As much as I don't want it to, that is pretty much the story of the weather for us. How is your life? I hope it's grand. Everything um, from my standpoint is pretty good. I'm in a really interesting um, transition because I decided in January that I was going to change the relationship I have with airlines. So I if you fly a lot, you're going to know this. If you don't fly a lot, this is, this is the stupidest thing ever to, compl- to talk about, but I'll talk about it anyway. If you fly a lot, the airlines really get you kind of addicted to them by making you be a part of their loyalty program. And the benefit you get is you get, you get to board early and that's about it. Sometimes you get upgraded, maybe. And that's about it, really. I mean, this, they make it sound like a lot more than that, but it's not so much. But what's crazy is I, I just kind of thought about this a bunch because I'm really struggling with, with um, how much I travel. It's just, I, I love travel and I love seeing you guys. It's so much fun to see you guys, but travel is really hard. And they're not nice to you. And, and I always have all these, these um, I wouldn't say they're problems because there are real problems. We're going to talk about problems here in a moment. But I have these inconveniences that drive me crazy. And I decided part of my problem was is that I was going to Herculean feats to retain loyalty to, to an airline. And they weren't really very loyal to me. And I was spending a ton of money. But I was doing like like flying... Not, you know, getting up early to fly on their brand or they call it their metal to fly in their metal or taking an extra connection sometimes, you know, that kind of stuff to, to keep on the plane. And I've just decided that if context drives behavior, what they've learned is if they build these loyalty programs and give you some benefits that what it really does is drive your context so that you you go to these crazy feats to do all this junk. And then when stuff goes bad, they're just as mean to you as they always were. Like you may, you, you might as well never fly, you know, 2 million mile flyer on their airline. And they're like, yeah, okay, whatever. See ya. Sorry, no plane. See you later. So I've decided I'm going to change that. I'm spreading the love around and that's what I'm going to do. We'll see if it works or not. I mean, maybe I'll fall right back into the trap, but I'm going to try not to because I think it was driving my behavior and my behavior was not something I was especially proud of. So there, there you go. And that is kind of a March-like thing to say here on the 1st of March. What's freaking me out, and I'll bet you're right there with me, is the coronavirus stuff. I, I don't know. You've, I know you've been following, especially in our jobs. I know you're following it. And it started out a couple months ago, and it seemed distant and far away unless you're our friends in China and then you were deep in it. But for the rest of us, it seemed like something that, you know, this, wow, this is something to watch, but it's, and now what's happened is, is it's moving throughout the globe and the case numbers are dramatically increasing and the virus infection rate is 2.3. So for every one person infected, they will infect another 2.3 people or, you know, between two and three, I guess 2.3 is kind of between two and three. And you're starting to see arithmetically the virus move very quickly. And it's starting to move to places where they're not really certain how it got there. 
which is a real signal that the virus has escaped. And I just read an article. I've been really trying to follow like the Center for Disease Control in the United States. Um, some of the people who, who work in this area and have really strong fact-based context on this. And I just read an article that said, the virus is out, it's escaped. And so now really the strategy is not a strategy of prevention, it's a strategy of resilience, of recoverability. And I started thinking, holy crap, that's exactly what we do. I mean, that's, that's, those are the words we talk about every day. Prevention's really, really, really important. But when prevention fails, when something escapes, then the question you have to ask is, what's the recoverability? How do we regain stability? And that, my friends, is a discussion around capacity, or as David Woods calls it, graceful extensibility, resilience. And I think it's so interesting, kind of frightening. I mean, there's no question it's frightening. But from, from a professional standpoint, the, the place where we work, I think it's so incredibly interesting that we're now looking at this notion of capacity, of, of our ability and preparedness for something like this to happen. And you can really see, especially if you watch the news or, or any kind of any global news is really interesting for this or read anything on this, you see that tension around capacity. Because if you don't need recoverability, Capacity is seen as expensive and unnecessary. So when prevention works, recoverability isn't very important. And because it's expensive and unnecessary, well, you're seeing cases where some of the capacity to recover was removed, completely removed, because it wasn't at, needed at the time. Well, now that gets really interesting because when you need recoverability, then it's priceless. So you have this really interesting relationship with capacity. It's expensive to have, but it's really expensive not to have. And that, my friends, is really interesting to what we do. Now, I'm not making light of anything, and I'm just as freaked out as anybody. In fact, I, I got a big trip coming up next week that I'm really worried about. But I don't know, when you look at it and ask about the strategy of prevention and the strategy of recovery. And you look at things like uh, the Ebola uh, virus that happened a couple of years ago and how they were really able to, in many ways, contain the virus by having a strong enough prevention strategy that the recoverability, which mattered tremendously, didn't need to be accessed globally. And now the coronavirus. Well, it looks to me like the ability to prevent the spread of that virus has probably reached its maximum effectiveness. It's no longer big enough to prevent what it needs to prevent, or the virus is so big it can't be prevented by what, what the tools that we have to prevent it, that we're now in a recovery position. And it's really going to be a discussion around capacity. How many test kits do we have? That's a capacity question, right? Those are recoverability things. And it kind of goes exactly into what we've been talking about. And that is a very, very interesting thing for us to think about. You can look at this a bunch of ways, and we probably should look at it all the ways. 
we can look at it personally and for our families and friends, and it's pretty scary. We can look at it professionally and we can ask the question about recoverability and resilience, about the cost of capacity versus the cost of capacity. Or we look at it kind of systemically and really ask this question. Um, as the world becomes smaller, not really, I mean, that's metaphorical, but as the world becomes smaller because transportation becomes easier and people interact much differently than they would have even a hundred years ago, does the ability to respond to outliers, uh, a virus that escapes, does that ability exist and how do we test the capacity? And all of a sudden things like, like defenses and controls, those are really important words. Testing, audits, validation and verification programs, those are really significant to this. And metrics. And metrics become really interesting, especially when you have a viral infection rate of 2.3, which means for every person that gets the virus, they will infect between two and three more people. Wow. If that gets out, I mean, inevitably, the answer is there'll be a lot of coronavirus. And if that's true, do we have the recoverability? Watch this space, but this space isn't a probably good place to watch it. Look for places and think about the question of resilience and recovery, because that's a really important part of what we want to talk about. Now, uh, today's podcast is not depressing. I mean, that was depressing. I don't know if that's, is that, yeah, it seems depressing. Let's switch gears a little bit, because I want to tell you a story. But to get to that story, I, I need to sort of set it up. So let me take a moment and just kind of set this up for you, and we'll have a discussion around the very things we talk about and this one, this one, my friends, has a pretty good outcome. Okay, let's get into this. So I get a lot of emails and stuff, which is great. I mean, it is great. It's feedback. Some good, some of it bad. It's all good, right? I mean, it's, it's good to get it all. I like the feedback. I got a letter that I think is really important to share with you. Now, the reason I want to share it with you is because I think it gives us a real feeling of what success looks like and what it feels like, and it's from a real, per it's from a real person just like us. And I think it's important for me to tell you that even though he wrote the letter to me, he kind of, in a way, is writing it to all of us because it's a letter around the shift in thinking and what a difference it made. I just think I was kind of the target for the letter because, uh, well, he, you know, I was somebody that he knew the email address of, so he wrote it to me. I want to read this letter to you, and that's kind of the story I want you to think about because this is a pretty interesting story, and I actually think it's worthwhile. Now, I'm not going to read the letter verbatim. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of scrub it a little bit um, because I think um, that would be, well, I think I need to do that anyway. And it's better because the details of who it is and what company it is, is that's not terribly important. What's important is kind of the point of the story. And so the letter starts with some very pleasant sort of cordial opening. Hope you're doing well. You know, the normal stuff you write. And then it said, I just wanted to pass along how your involvement in our company's last fatality directly saved the lives of two workers 
who experienced an OUV operational failure. So an OUV, I think, I don't really know what OUV, well, I know what, I mean, I just don't know what OUV stands for, but I would call these a side-by-side. They're, they're the utility vehicles. They're like really super fancy adult go-karts or maybe super hardcore golf carts. But what they are, those, they're, they're the utility vehicles, the kind of the light utility vehicles that lots of companies have. In fact, my company, I worked really hard to get rid of all the ATVs, the all-terrain vehicles, the little ones with the little wheels, because those are super dangerous. If you roll over, two, people die in those all the time. Two, two types of people, either really new drivers or really experienced drivers, they die, and they almost all die the same way. It rolls over them and breaks their neck. And so I replaced all those with these side-by-sides, with uh, gators, with these utility vehicles. And, and that's what this letter is talking about is a, a, a fatality that happened to a worker who was in an OUV. And that OUV operational failure that happened, um, uh, well, they're going to talk about it. It says, if you remember, in August of 2018... An employee suffered fatal injuries when the OUV he was operating rolled over on its side. Now, the line of business that that owned that work reacted to the event by determining to address and fix their safety culture. Their initial belief was that the safety culture is what had caused that fatality. So, so the, the line of business believed that the problem was, is that the workers weren't following the rules and because they weren't following the rules, right, that they had this accident. So what they needed to do is get people to care more and try harder and to be more obedient and, and not to react by breaking the rules and driving too fast and driving crazy. He goes on to say, The line of business reacted to the event, but you helped in many ways to reset the line of business focus on being more concerned with what controls failed our worker. And as a result of that course correction, all of the utility vehicles were replaced and managed to ensure that all workers were provided utility vehicles that had controls that would prevent catastrophic failure the next time one was involved in an accident. Uh, Complete rollover protection system, cab netting, shoulder restraints, helmets with face shields, speed control governors, um, not high-performance racing vehicles, but more utility-based vehicles. Then the next paragraph says, jump forward to April of 2019. Two workers were operating an OUV. They lost their brake function in the vehicle and started accelerating out of control. The vehicle struck trees, then rolled multiple times down a 50-foot hillside, striking another tree and coming to rest on its passenger side. In comparison to the 2018 accident, this accident was far more severe. And then this next part is bolded. He bolded it. Yet, 
the improvements made to the OUV and the controls in the OUV from the previous catastrophic event successfully provided both workers with the capacity to recover when the operational failure occurred without any injuries. And it goes on to say thank you and a lot of nice platitudes that I clearly are not deserved by me, but it was nice to read them. I, I share that letter with you because that story is not unusual. In fact, earlier this year, I heard a story of a lineman who fell during a training exercise a year ago and had a serious, serious, serious outcome. And they got together a group of linemen and talked about it and decided a harness would be a better idea, put all their linemen in harnesses, and a lineman fell this year during the same training exercise and basically just was lowered and was fine. What's interesting to me about this discussion, and especially about these these uh, utility vehicles, these 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 items that we give workers to do work, but when they fail, we say the worker chose to use them wrong. What's interesting about that switch is not the letter. The letter's beautiful. In fact, I'm so sad that story started with a, a young man's fatality, but I'm so happy it ended with a worst accident and lesser consequence, you know, no injuries. But what I find interesting about this story is, is really not the part of the story where we're involved. The, the safety people or the people doing the investigations or the people who write the books or th- those people, those people are all just people trying to do their best. What I find interesting is that the organization somehow looked at the problem differently and by looking at the problem differently, came up with different corrective actions. And those different corrective actions, when tested, actually created a different outcome. And it sounds so simple when you say it. I mean, when we talk about it, and we do it all the time. We talk about it all the, all the stinking time we talk about this. It sounds so simple. But, but what's amazing to me is that this is really a difficult and challenging thing for an organization to do. Because they've, they've really got to change the way they look at failure and then change the questions they ask in understanding failure in order to create an outcome that, that gives us some kind of different event. And I think that is worth discussing because that's an enormously important part of what we do and how things happen and how work transpires. And I think that, my friends, is a very, very significant part of what we do. Our job is to not create a system that is completely reliant on prevention. Our job is to create a system that understands the relationship between prevention and recoverability prevention, and resilience, capacity. And to know that when something happens, we can either look down and in at workers' behavior and judgment or up and out 
at the type of OUV, the type of gator we give people, and we can really create change that's sustainable beyond behavior. That seems incredibly important to me. I mean, I don't know what you think, but that seems incredibly significant to what it is we talk about. That part of this discussion is huge. Because building that capacity is really a function of how we ask questions. And suddenly realizing that changing the way we see the worker from a problem to be fixed to a solution to be harnessed changes everything in our sustainable outcomes that live beyond us which is kind of a nice thing to say. I mean, that's actually a really nice thing to say. They're not contingent upon us. You don't have to be there. You don't have to, you don't even have to be, you you just, you can be so, you can be on vacation in the Bahamas. You can be someplace nice, right? You don't even have to be there. And that sustainable ability, that, that capacity exists far beyond us. And that seems really important. That's a big, big part of what we want to think about. And I want to thank specifically the, the person that sent us that letter. That letter is really nice. But mostly what I want to do is challenge you and to ask you this question. Do you have that level of capacity in the systems that you know can fail? Have you switched from a positioning strap to a climbing harness? Have you built resilience into your system so that you can improve from there. And if the answer is yes, well then keep doing it. But don't fall for the airline loyalty program because that will get you in trouble. Jeez, man, I hope this wasn't too confusing. This was impossible to put together. I can't can't even believe. Well, I was kind of all over the map today. But I, I told, so this podcast started out with me reading the letter and talking about capacity. In the midst of it was all the news on the coronavirus. And the connection between the two, I guess, in my brain, I couldn't defeat. So I decided to make a gigantic podcast that covers everything. It just covers everything. And then it took me forever to put it together. I can't even, ugh, March. Oh, I'm making a fist. Oh, that's the fist noise. Oh. March, you're killing me. You're killing me. It's terrible. But I'll make it, I'm sure. So one more time, March 7th and 8th. That week is so busy, that week in March, because Bob and I and Mark and Helen are doing a workshop in Chattanooga. That is Chattanooga, Tennessee. That is Chattanooga Choo Choo. That's the same Chattanooga. I'm flying into Nashville because Nashville is the best airport to fly into in the whole world because there's live music all the time. Yeah, and good food. But that's uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And then Thursday, Friday in Vegas is Nippon and I with the accident investigation workshop, which tons of you guys want, but, but I'm not sure there's an interest. It's, it's probably just too much crap in one week. I get it. And it's, it's May. It's a crazy time. Who knows? I don't even know what's going to happen. Maybe none of us will be traveling by then. But think about it. If you're interested, tell me and we'll, we'll jump through the hurdles and make it happen. If not, that's fine too. We can live through it. Hopefully today was valuable to you. There are so many great podcasts coming up. 
down the pike, my friends, there's great news for you. Until then, keep listening. Tell your friends. Everybody ask one person to listen. That actually will help a lot. Um, it's kind of a viral marketing thing. No offense to the coronavirus conversation we had earlier. Um, but it does help a lot. And thank you for listening. That's most important. I really enjoy it makes me happy to, to hang out with you. So that's a good time. Until then, learn something new every single day. Have as much fun as you possibly can. And for goodness sakes, you guys, be safe. You ever work those projects where everything you do goes wrong and you're just really glad it's over? That is this podcast. Good God. I'm so happy this is over.